there are too many people, like I said, seeing doctors in this stress state. So when they do go to have their thyroid blood test taken, it's not a direct reflection of, of, of how accurate or sensitive or specific the blood tests are going to be. Um, but I, like you say, if you can get the food right and if you can get light exposure, the right type of exercise, the right type of sleep, most people should be doing okay. Welcome to the Win at Life podcast, a place where we share everything you need to know about restoring your metabolism so you can break free from restrictive diets and build a body and life you love. I'm Kitty Bloomfield, co-founder of New Strength and your host for this episode. Today, I'm sitting down with our good friend, Keith Littlewood. We're going to discuss why blood tests may not be the best indicator of your health or hormone levels. Have you ever felt like your hormones are out of whack or something just isn't quite right? You go and get blood tests, but the results come back and the doctor says everything is normal. Yet you're feeling really lethargic or your hair is falling out, or you're still having hot sweats and you can't sleep at night, or you're really, really moody and you have irregular periods. So the question is, are blood tests really a good indication of what's happening in the body? In this episode, Tomo discusses why blood tests are not always good indicators of health, what things your doctor should really consider when taking blood tests, what specific indicators you should look for if you have low thyroid function, high cholesterol and what it actually means, and how your external factors contribute to thyroid function. We also discuss the two simple and free tests you can perform yourself, which can help you assess your thyroid function, as well as the other indicators like sleep, digestion, mood, energy, sex drive, and menstrual cycle, and what they can actually tell you about your body and your health. As always, take a screenshot and share your biggest takeaways on Insta stories and tag me at K-I-T-T-Y-B-L-O-M-F-I-E-L-D. Let's spread the word and free other women from restrictive diets. Everybody and uh, welcome to another episode of the uh, Win at Life podcast. We had great reviews from uh, Keith, or as his friends call him, Tomo <laughs> Littlewood, um, around the first podcast around hormones. And you know, because we work with uh, so many women who have developed hormonal imbalances from all the crazy dumb diets that we have done to ourselves over the years, and today's discussion is around blood tests and I was saying to Tomo you know like we get a lot of women come into the program and they present with so many of the symptoms of estrogen dominance and but however doctors say well you actually need more estrogen which we talked about last week Um, but then they go and get these blood tests done or they might have thyroid issues and the blood tests say that they're they're fine Um, and you know it's it's really frustrating because it's so hard to say to them, well, maybe your doctor's wrong. Like, you know, and I thought today would just be a, you know, and because you and I were talking about this last week um, and we started to sort of scratch the surface of, you know, are blood blood tests really a good indicator of any, anything like what, what, when are they good? Why are they not, you know, like what what are your thoughts? Yeah. I think there are certainly some instances when blood tests can be really, really useful, Mm. but, um, there can be a number of factors, I think, associated with um, certainly an individual's environment, whether they're stressed. I mean, even the endocrine society proceedings has shown that pollution, for example, has a huge effect on cancer, heart disease, metabolic syndrome, diabetes. Um, but what, sometimes what they don't look at uh, and explore it, uh, there are plenty of studies that show that the way that a hormone functions within a feedback mechanism doesn't accurately describe what's going on with someone's physiology. So mm. thyroid is probably the perfect example. Um, thyroid hormone is, it permeates every aspect of function in the human body. Mm. And we tend to think, or, or not we, certainly not me, but doctors tend to think it works in this binary manner. It's, it's either right or it's wrong. And the, the, the TSH test is both specific and um, sensitive enough to, to accurately diagnose it. And when you look at all these studies, you're getting a euthyroid group, potentially people who have healthy thyroid versus hypo or hypo, whatever they're looking at. Mm. Because the tests are just looking at this TSH value and sometimes looking at T4 and T3. So TSH is obviously thyroid stimulating hormone. It's the pituitary. And you, yeah, describe that for the viewers who don't necessarily know what that is. Yeah. Sure. So the way that uh, thyroid classically works within the described text is that 
when we have uh, the thyroid hormone tends to uh, act as a metabolic stim stimulator, it, but it also, as I said, it, it kind of affects every level of function. So fertility, digestion, neurological transmission, this is why we get cold bodies, we get constipated bodies, we get slow bodies, we get heart rates that become slower, we get high cholesterol, we get high blood pressure. All of these aspects are controlled by uh, thyroid function. Now you see a lot of people that then go to the doctors and then they have their cholesterol tests. And it's just the cholesterol that's elevated, so they put on statins. Or they just have their blood pressure assessed, and they put on uh, antihypertensives, which is a blood pressure medication. Now, what tends to happen, if someone's um, thyroid isn't working, bear in mind the thyroid is this gland, butterfly-shaped gland in the neck. It's there to produce adequate amounts of T4. T4 is the, um, the kind of base hormone, which then is then usually peripherally converted to T3, which is the active thyroid hormone. There's also T2 and T1. Now, what happens is when there, there's enough uh, thyroid hormone in the tissues, there should be enough in the blood. And you have this feedback loop that goes up to the hypothalamus, an area of the brain that's our control center. Uh, it's been uh, described as the body's thermostat because it regulates heat and all the other functions associated with it. So then the, the, the hypothalamus tells the pituitary, which is another area in the brain that produces all of the other hormones, such as prolactin, um, your uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormones, which is still uh, luteinizing and follicular hormone, which we discussed last week, growth hormone. Uh, and um, what tends to happen is that it will tell the pituitary, you don't need to release any more hormones. So we have this really nice and neat classic feedback loop. Now, the problem is, and particularly with thyroid hormone, there are a number of reasons why thyroid hormone may not be accurately uh, predicted in the other tissues. So, for example, pollution combined to the receptors that allow T3 to bind to its site and work in its manner. Now, there are other mechanisms of thyroid hormone as well. Typically, they work in the two distinct manners of being genomic and non-genomic. Aspects that affect the gene and aspects that, uh, that tend to work much quicker. And they'll work around metabolism and feedback and all of these other aspects. So what tends to happen is... Um, you will go to the doctors and they will assess the thyroid via this blood test and they will assess this thyroid stimulating hormone, which is produced mm. when it's perceived that not enough thyroid hormone is available within the body. Mm. Now that will activate the thyroid gland and sometimes TSH is problematic because as it starts increasing, it will also increase the size of the thyroid gland to a degree aspects of growth will occur and this will hopefully stimulate it to produce more t4 to t3 now t4 is considered a precursor hormone but it also has many other effects beyond the precursor and t3 is our active hormone so t4 should be produced and then t3 peripherally at sites like the liver the kidneys and musculoskeletal sorry muscular tissue will convert to t3 and t3 will have all these wonderful effects on metabolism and everything else so if you're going to the doctors and you're in a state of either you're stressed, and we talked about this with kind of estrogen and thyroid in the last one, is that if, if your doctor's not even discussing how stressed you are, mm. what type of environment you're living in, then they have no idea what your TSH and uh, values of, of T4 and T3 are doing. Now, classically, these days, most endocrinologists look at uh, free T4 and free T3, which is a much smaller component and considered to be the active part. Mm. Now, I think if you look at Ray's uh, old article called Thera uh, Thyroid Therapies, Confusion and Fraud, it looks at the blood tests and suggests why looking at the total values, total T4, total T3, is actually gives you a much better indication of the available thyroid that, that's going around. So sometimes you do see uh, the total correlate with the, the free values, but sometimes they can be totally different. And this might give an indication of actually what's going on within the tissues as well. So to, to, to backtrack again, you go to the doctors and if your TSH is fine, and generally there's still many, many doctors that will just view TSH. Mm. Now, classically, thyroid stimulating hormone has a range of 0.5 to 4.5, and that is considered the normal range. 
Now, as it starts to creep above this 4.5, then people start to consider aspects of something called subclinical hypothyroidism. Then as it goes even further, high levels of TSH, depending on the clinician, they will say whether you have uh, overt hypothyroidism, but you really need to look at the, the thyroid values as well. But here's the kicker. If your free T3 or total T3 and, and, and T4 appear they can appear exactly um in the same manner that thyroid stimulating hormone can as well because if someone is stressed someone is in a very polluted area somebody's not eating enough someone's over exercising there's a small window when these values might appear out but then I, think, I think too you know like so many of the women that come to out to us are probably you too that is their general state like yes. they're always yeah. stressed they're, so they're, they're under eating yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is where the problem occurs. And, you know, one of the reasons why I decided to do my master's was to actually evaluate this. And I, I was um, let down by a clinic who said they were going to give me all these people. So I had to reach across to people in social media around the world. And I got a small study group of five people. Yeah. What, what we found was, is that people had very normal TSH and thyroid values, mm. but their symptoms of hypothyroidism there was, I only used 11 markers. They had seven out of 11 markers generally as a minimum mm. and they correlated with low temperature and pulse rate. Now this is where, this is the tenuous part of looking at, mm. at blood tests and thyroid values mm. and kick in if you have any questions at all. So like, would you, would you, can you just talk about like, you know, obviously we've talked about the low temperature and pulse, but some of those subjective measures that, what are the indicators that you would look yeah. for? So I, I think uh, thyroid, uh, going back to the 40s when you had Broder Barnes, who was a, mm. a very eminent uh, doctor, was showing that people with low thyroid function generally had low body temperatures mm. and a pulse rate that can be variable depending on if they're in an acute state or a chronic state. So if you think about thyroid hormone, one of its most important actions is metabolism and mm. generating heat and keeping the body functioning at a, a set point. Now mammals tend to regulate their temperature very tightly around about 37 degrees. Mm. And if they go outside of that range, problems can start to occur. We know that as we start, you can, you can, you know, when you're sick and you've got a temperature of 38 degrees, you know it, right? Mm -hmm. And then, some people can't function too well in that. Equally, as you go cooler, we get into an activation of a lot of enzymes. Now, estrogen can do this, can make someone cooler. Mm. Um, and when you push towards 35 degrees, you're technically heading towards a hypothermic state. That mm. means you're getting extremely cold and part of the body's, um, many aspects of the body's function will start to downregulate. Now, you can have a, a kicking mechanism to, to protect you. Mm. And that's usually mediated. It's thyroid dependent but it's usually mediated by adrenaline and cortisol. Mm. So you will start to liberate energy. We'll also use something called brown adipose tissue. So to prevent you getting colder and your body temperature going even lower and all of these hypothermic or low body temperature reactions occurring, it will start to kick in to make you warmer. Mm. And usually you'll tend to see people in a more chronic state. So you'll have got colder and colder and colder, and then all of a sudden your body temperature will get warmer because your body doesn't want you to go colder. And that's, mm. it's a bit like the stress response of having no sugar available. Mm. The, breath, the body will start to liberate energy from stored fatty acids to convert mm. to glucose to give you more energy. That's almost part of the same response. There are two stress responses related to temperature regulation. Mm. Now, your pulse can give an indicator of this as well. So, for example, hypothyroid values of heart rates from some studies could be anywhere from between 60 and 80 degrees and certainly lower than that because ad adequate thyroid hormone regulates heartbeat. So mm. when we know that when uh, we have low energy, our muscles don't respond well. So our can I just ask you a quick question just around that? You know, like Because we've seen sometimes, um, too, a client's temperature will come up but their pulse yeah. is still low. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So um, what's happening there? Well, it can, it can, there can be a number of factors. Mm. Obviously, if someone tends to be quite bitter, then mm. you will have a kind of a fitness adaptive response. But I still think their heart rate should be up slightly higher. So temperature can come up. But I would say if someone's pushing more to the 37 degrees and their temperature's low, mm. there may be some kind of variation. Their pulse there. But is if low. 
Yeah. If their temperature yeah. kind of like the 36, 36 and a half degrees and mm. their pulse is still low, you mm. can make a rough assumption that perhaps they're still in a hypothyroid range. Mm. Now you want to correlate that with everything else. And this is where I'll talk about the, the, the clinical presentation. Mm. When, when somebody goes to the doctors, usually what should happen is you should look at the, the clinical presentation of someone. So if somebody goes to the doctor and say, I'm constantly, any of these variables, because things don't happen in a linear kind of neat graph, right? Somebody might go, I'm a bit constipated at the moment. My hair's falling out. Um, mm. My energy's really low. He goes and tests, he goes and tests the, um, the, the thyroid, for example. And because they haven't been eating very well and they're in this chronic state, mm. the thyroid blood tests are going to complete, uh, appear completely normal. Mm. Um, what then tends to happen is they might run their cholesterol test as part of that. Now the cholesterol is elevated, but we know that high cholesterol is actually a clear indicator of the thyroid not functioning appropriately. And I think that's a really, you know, like we get that all the time. Women come into our program and they're like, Oh, my cholesterol's high. Oh, my doctor's said that, you know, I need to take statins or, you know, um, but, but also too, like what, what, what range is, is, would you say is, you know, like obviously as people age, it's better to have high cholesterol, you know, it's, it's protective. Yeah. yeah. So like what, you know, cause I think obviously the ranges that the doctors talk about, cause they're always looking at, you know, like what, what would you say to someone is still okay versus you probably yeah. got, you know, low thyroid. Yeah. I think, well, I think it's, it's a great question. I think usual uh, cholesterol values and like you said, there are quite a few studies that show that Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's clients actually do much better with higher cholesterol values, mm. particularly the LDL. But I, I think somewhere around about the 200 mark, even to 220 mm. um, uh, nanograms per deciliter, which I think is around about 5.6 millimoles per litre. And maybe um, I'll, just, I'll just cut in there because some, some of the women might not know, but your body makes it one of the building blocks of your, your protective steroid hormones is cholesterol. So yeah. your body's not turning it over, um, then it's going to be high, right? Yeah. And, I, and, I, I, yeah, and there are quite a few studies that show that people with lower cholesterol levels often don't live as, as long yeah. as people with the high cholesterol levels. Yeah. So in, in low thyroid function, if we're talking about the, the receptor um, aspect of biology, it doesn't explain all aspects of, of, of hormone function. Mm. But typically the LDL receptor is decreased in, in levels of low thyroid function. Mm. Now, I think it's, it's really important to ascertain if somebody's going away and being described or prescribed a single source medication, it's mm. very easy to do that. The clinician might not have much time. They're going in. They don't have the time to ask if there's a, if there's a, a dietary deficit. They don't have time to ask how stressed someone mm. is. So going and look at these blood tests and it's this very binary black and white, is it right or is it wrong uh, test, which is not descriptive of the actual function. Mm. So and it might be hypertension as well. We talk about high blood pressure. There are, there are so many studies that show that when you make, if you, if you give people who have uh, low thyroid function um, adequate thyroid, their blood pressure tends to resolve. Mm. Um, and also, you can almost address this within uh, looking at someone. So if, because it's, it's, you know, it's a, a, a very interesting point about whether people should be taking thyroid hormone or not. One, two things that you can do to, to see if your blood pressure temporarily improves. In fact, three things that you can do. One is increase the amount of magnesium that you take mm. because in a, in a low thyroid state, you tend to waste magnesium. Mm. The other thing is to do bag breathing and mm. carbon dioxide retention mm. because also you tend to waste carbon dioxide when you're in a, a low thyroid state. So being able to give the smooth muscle cells which respond to carbon dioxide levels enough carbon dioxide, it can temporarily act as a vasodilator. Mm. So if you see someone hypertensive responding to adequate magnesium mm. and carbon dioxide, but when they stop doing it, that effect is lost. You mm. can actually make you can start to investigate the facts of whether somebody actually does have a thyroid issue based upon that. But a lot of clinicians don't have the time to even look at that. And obviously mm. there's plenty of studies that show that actually giving someone enough progesterone can help to lower uh, hypertension. So there may be other hormonal uh, interactions that need to be addressed here. But I still think if you're not looking at someone's history, someone's diet, someone's stress, all of these blood tests are going to be appear completely the same and then there's also the aspects of pollution as well that we haven't really looked at because all of the pollution 
effect, particularly the inhaled pollution. Mm. So with, with combustion engines, uh, cars, also the brake pads, also the tyres coming off. When you're in a city or an urban environment, this tends to produce very small par particles. And you've, everybody knows about the PM 2.5 particles, right? All mm. of these particles show to have a very high estrogenic effect mm. that disrupt thyroid function. And again, what they're doing is they're muddying the water by making the, the receptors act in a different way. Mm. They tend to stimulate the estrogen receptors to act even more potent than estrogen do. So mm. they can upregulate and hijack the receptors. And this is also the same for the thyroid receptor as well. So we have two types of uh, thyroid hormone receptor, thyroid hormone receptor A and B. Mm -hmm. uh, and these can tend to be very problematic in pollution. And it's just another factor why a blood test can appear completely normal to, to anybody who's looking at that blood test. Mm. And just actually back to the magnesium, do you recommend clients take it um, orally or like Epsom salt baths or own the skin? Like what do you think is the optimal way? I think it's, I think it's really a suck it and see kind of thing. So some mm. people do really, really well. I, I have a client, a Parkinson's client, that I was actually getting to, to, um, to eat his Epsom sulfates. Yeah, really. Um, because one, yeah, because one, I wanted to stimulate his bowel because he was going to the toilet once every ten days. Yeah, so wow. I found that if we put the Epsom sulfates in, we were going for like, uh, like I think it was just like I wasn't even going for a, a specific dose. I was going for half a teaspoonful in the morning, half yeah. a teaspoon in the afternoon, and it had an effect of seeming to raise magnesium levels and also stimulate the bowel adequately. Now, obviously, mm. one of the well-known uh, functions of um, magnesium sulfate is to stimulate the bowel. Mm. But I think I actually in raised one of raised posts uh, a long time ago that if you gave someone Epsom sulfate spread throughout the day, it doesn't have the stimulatory effect on the bowel where you're, it's mm. like a, a diarrhea-like effect. Mm. So this just had that effect. So I've done the same with magnesium chloride. Uh, we bathe in magnesium chloride or Epsom salts at home. Some clients take citrate. You know, it really does depend on what's available and what, what works for the client, I think. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. And what about estrogen? You know, like we, we get clients come in and they go, I mean, obviously the doctors again go, oh, well, when you're going through menopause or you've got, you know, period issues, then your body needs more estrogen. And they do these blood tests and they go, oh, yeah, but my estrogen's really low. You know, it's, it's just yeah. like it's completely backwards. It's completely, you know, wrong yeah. on so many levels. And <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's uh, something, again, that's not often appreciated is that depending on the client, how much adipose tissue they have, how much aromatase they're producing, still looking at estrogen levels in the blood can be very, very problematic. And we know that estrogen suppresses thyroid function as well. So mm -hmm. if someone's exposed to a high pollution area, uh, when, you, when you don't eat, you tend to increase estrogen levels, particularly if you're kind of uh, chronic fasting. Uh, this can make your thyroid hormone appear completely normal in the blood. Now, generally with fasting, in a short-term response, TSH will increase, but you will also suppress your TSH when you're not eating. I'd imagine we're talking beyond several days or a week or so. I think you'll see, the, see those TSH values start to decrease. And mm. that's why decreasing uh, TSH values is a natural phenomena when there's stress. Mm. Um, I'm going to digress slightly here, as I do. Mm. Um, there's, there's some very well-respected thyroid researchers, very, very clever guys who've been um, struck off and, or made to resign from the medical re register. If you take a look at, um, I think, is, is it Mary Showman's Know Your Thyroid website? Mm. She interviewed a very well-respected uh, do medical doctor, a thyroid researcher, very, mm. very clever guy, who back in the 80s or 90s was treating people's uh, symptoms and his, his uh, argument was that TSH takes so long to catch up with someone's physiology that mm. the symptoms of low thyroid function mm. tend to be the best indicator. And again, looking at the temperature and pulse values. And he was struck off because he was treating someone's symptoms and having outstanding results. Just mm. like Broder Bart found that you could eradicate heart disease by treating thyroid, uh, uh, deficient uh, thyroid people with adequate thyroid hormone, mm. he was getting some very, very good results. And like I said, he wasn't, he, he was struck by the Canadian Medica Medical Council, but he, he had produced so much research and mm. you get very clever guys that are very critical, a very binary, uh, sorry, binary um, applications of medicine. You have to wonder 
what what's going through people's minds sometimes is it just a way of being able to keep everybody buttoned into this system mm. and suppressing actual real big biological mechanisms so that people can prescribe single source medications like hypertensive like statins mm. like uh, the, what the big poly pill they're trying to get pushed through where everybody takes a combined statin hypertensive and whatever else it is it's crazy and, and equally there was another yeah, it, it, it's, it's mind-boggling. And there's another guy in the UK called Dr. Barry Durham-Petefield who wrote a book on thyroid as well. And he, he, he basically, he went through a similar thing. And I think he, in the end, he decided to resign rather than go through the process of, uh, mm. of uh, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like the, the court or whatever, like a kangaroo court of, of being tried. And, mm. and he, he, he was a well-respected researcher as well. And you also have the same... Um, things going on within vaccines as well, which I'm not going to talk about because it's very contentious. Mm. Very well researchers that are basically shot down in smoke despite giving very credible uh, research guidelines. That, and and uh, there's a number of people, Jamie Cunliffe, who's looked at autoimmunity and, and, mm. and looking at what aspects of, of different um, interactions like vaccines do to people. And mm. uh, Professor Chris Exley, who's, who's been researching aluminium for 35 years, it's like there are very clever people who discredit very poor mechanisms that are there and they get shot down in flames because there are big bodies who have lots of money behind them. Mm. And like we, we talk about conspiracy theories and it's like, this isn't conspiracy theory. This is actually well-documented proceedings against very clever people who provide very, very convincing arguments that are backed up by real research and data. Mm. And so this, this is the problem with analyzing thyroid hormone. Like I said, when you're looking at a hormone that affects every level of function in the body, you are going to see different aspects of this disease pop up in different people, depending on their inheritance, their mm. stress, their nutritional approaches. So like I said, it might be somebody who goes to the doctors and they have high cholesterol, hairs falling, constipation. Oh, it mm. must be the cholesterol. We'll treat that because the thyroid looks absolutely normal. Or mm. someone's got high blood pressure, can't sleep very well, gaining a bit of weight. Well, okay, we'll treat the, the blood pressure because that's the issue. Mm. And the problem is, is like there are lots and lots of studies that showing that treating people with thyroxine can have a really beneficial effect. But mm. there are other studies that don't show that effect. Now, I think the problem with looking at those studies is that if you're not looking at that, if your study cohort, what their nutrition is like, how do you know that the person who's taking thyroxine in the morning isn't skipping breakfast, yeah. isn't doing fasted exercise, and then you're saying thyroxine doesn't work to, to, to get rid of this uh, high cholesterol. But actually, if you have no idea what the study group are doing from a, a nutritional intervention or an exercise stress or pollution intervention, you have no idea of whether the, the thyroxine uh, application to high cholesterol has actually worked. It's almost it's, it's a ridiculous study in some some aspects. It, it's so interesting. Like I feel I, like the women that get the best, re and some of the ones that have had the worst issues. You know, like horrendous hormonal issues, autoimmune diseases, have gotten the best results. Like it's just the the pillars, the key pillars. You know, like get sleep, reduce stress, have eat adequate energy like fuel your body get the right yeah. nutrients into you from the right foods and then just you know adding in like they might have some gelatin some progesty you know they don't go crazy on the supplements like just the you know magnesium they might have a few, they might use a bit of cascara but it, it's they do the it's the food it's i think yeah. too many people are looking for the 10 percent thing to do the 90% thing, you know, like the, I was talking to Emma about it. It's, it's so many women, you know, you, you just, everyone wants the outside to look better and they want to look, yeah. they want to lose body fat, but, but, but they just keep, you know, cutting away at their base. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And you also get a lot of people that go to the docs and go, I have a thyroid issue just because they want to lose weight. Right. Mm. And they want to get thyroid hormone because they know it works but if they're start, if they're still doing the, the, the kind of things that stop them functioning mm. you know not eating uh focusing on just something like weight and and what the physique yeah. looks like it's always going mm. to be problematic and yeah I, you know we talked about perhaps why those people kind of need to shift their their focus yeah because it just you know i see it all the time like it, and the older you get, I feel like for women, it's harder. Like they just back themselves into this corner, like the older they get. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, if, if they just spent the time and I, and I, it's sort of like, cause it's not sexy and it's not quick. There's no like magic, you know, and everyone wants to get in shape quickly. Like you see all these adverts on Facebook and, you know, I, you know, there's the, these shredding programs and 12 week programs and, you know, it, it's so unrealistic to undo yeah. all of the years of damage that you've done in 12 weeks or, or you will get that body, but you'll just, you'll just dig yourself into a hole again, even further than you are now, you know, like by eating less calories and your hormones will get more out of balance and your sleep will get more shit and your digestion will get more shit, but you'll have that body for a short period of time. And then yeah. you just end up rebounding. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, I think like 75 to 80%, probably of, of, of both of the clients that we tend to see mm. will actually respond extremely well from getting those variables correct. Mm. And there's probably another 20, 25% that actually need a little bit more deeper look at mm. what's going on and probably mm. need, um, let's say going off to a doctor to see, uh, to take mm. thyroid hormone or something like that, or at least being given the, the tools to understand what's really going on and to make decisions and take control themselves. And mm. I always give a lot of clients research instructions and then to go and see the doctor to get a second opinion mm. because it's really important that they, they get that buy-in. And I, I think there are too many people, like I said, seeing, doctors in this stress state so when they do go to have their thyroid blood test taken it's not a direct reflection of of, of how accurate or sensitive or specific the blood tests are going to be um, mm. but I, like, like you say if you can get the food right and if you can get light exposure the right type of exercise the right type of sleep most people should be doing okay and mm. if you're not with that and I, I've got a client a couple of clients recently that I work with the food has only done so much and I know that they're going to be needing uh, more support with with various mechanisms over a period of time, and mm. and and some people, you know, you know, I've tried food, I've tried all of these things, and it, it just doesn't seem to work. And that's where they need just a bit more hand holding and pushing in the right direction. I think too, the other thing is time. Like you've got to be realistic in time that it takes. You know, I was, I was chatting to one of the, our clients who's been with us for like two years, and she had like really bad IBS when she came in. And, you yeah. know, she said now two years later and she, she had a very, um, she just done heaps of CrossFit and, you know, like starved the fuck out of herself basically. And she said that, you know, now like she'd be able to eat something that wasn't quite optimal, like say a wrap, you know, like from the supermarket and she'd have no issues now. Whereas previously yeah. anything she'd eat would just bloody, you know, she, and, and she wouldn't be able to eat, you know, like over 2000 calories and not put on weight. She wasn't that small, but now... Yeah you know, her body can handle more calories, her digestion, but it's taken, it took her two years. You know, and I, the other thing too is like you, you talk about the stress. I think that's a real big one. It's like you can't lock yourself away or head off to Bali for six months and have yeah. a chef and have no stress. You know, like I think it, those things, sleep, the stress, the sunlight, you know, so many people just don't get those basic things and we're all looking for like, but what's the pill that's going to fix me? You know, what's the quick yeah. thing that I can do when it's those... Yeah the mentals yeah I, I, I totally agree with you and mm. you know even if you're saying to someone you know you're going to be working on this for three to five years mm. if you've been if you've been around for 30 or 40 years or 50 years mm. and shits that never just got right mm. you might think five years oh, that's actually quite good but nobody thinks like that do they no dodie that I remember Dodie would say to me, Kitty, it takes like once you remove all the pufas and you get yourself on the right track, it takes 10%, she reckons, of your life to actually fully heal. So like if you're 40 and you've been doing whatever you've been doing for 30, however many years, like not to say that you won't see improvement along the way. Like it's not like you start and then snap your fingers four years later and you like, because you, you obviously see improvements, but it's... um you know, I really do think you're right. Like it takes a long time to, if you want to repair and then build, like build a solid foundation. You know, if you want yeah. to, once your body's, you know, you, you can actually handle some strength training. You got to get it to that point first, um, you know, and work on those things. And then, then it takes time to build it from there. You know, it's not a quick, but the thing is, I think, well, like I plan on hopefully living to a hundred. So like for 60 years of freedom, yeah. versus I keep doing the same crazy quick fix diets and hoping that it gets better, but being stuck, you know, it's actually not that long. Yeah. And I also think we need to consider the aspects of the stuff that people just don't know that's there. Mm. So 
I talk about with clients about house hygiene, sleep hygiene, mm. electromagnetic hygiene. There are lots of unseen things that are working on us. So for some people, it might be, I've got some things just aren't, aren't working for some people. And it's like the cleaners coming in and spraying like a, a really heavy detergent in the air. Mm. And all of these things can accumulate. And whilst we're talking about how robust food can make you and light stuff, there will be certain things that act as a trigger. And there's mm. been some really research and books from like the last 40 or 50 years that show that some people just have a certain trigger based upon a, a certain chemical. And it's understanding within their environment you know, they could be working on something for a really long time, but they just keep breaking down. And it's trying to be a bit of a detective about finding specific things that break people down. Mm. And if people keep going on for years and years and it's not, they probably just haven't found the thing that's acting as a trigger. Mm. And, you know, with pollution the way that it is, and, you know, I keep, I go on about environment and pollution all the time. It's like, there are some things that we just can't control. Mm. And there are some things that you can do to make yourself more robust. But for some people, it might need, mean a, a complete upheaval sometimes and going somewhere where they're not exposed to something. Sometimes mm. it might be the stress within a work. If you're that stressed within your job, for example, you yeah. need to make decisions so that this time frame, instead of being working on it for five years, it might be something you can resolve with one or two years by making good decisions. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to give up their job now. That mm. I'm just saying for each person, there's going to be certain triggers that make stuff really stressful. Mm. And some people, we become robust to it with, with the adequate stimulus that they put into their system. And some people need to kind of keep weighing up, um, you know, what's going on. Some people say that you can't get um, well in the same environment that make you sick. I, I, I think that's generally not true. There are mm -hmm. plenty of people that, you know, if we're looking at people who are getting stressed at work, not sleeping very well, and they're not eating very well, and they're over-exercising themselves, well, actually getting good sleep, eating well, you might find that stimulus at work isn't the thing that's going to break you down anymore. You become yeah. robust to that. And I think that's a really good point because, you know, I just know in myself too, like if I don't get a good night's sleep, like everything yeah. else the next day that usually would probably not be that bad, you're like, oh, the fucking world's ending. You know, like it yeah. just seems so overwhelming and you're just so stressed. Whereas if you're yeah. sleeping and you're fed and your blood sugar's stable, then you obviously, those things don't trigger you or phase you yeah. as much as they would. Um, yeah. And, and, and you, so many women, they're just, they're on these dumb diets, these 1,200 calorie, you know, like I see fitness models on Facebook and they're doing like cuts and bloody, and I think, like I look at their diets and I think, how the fuck, like how are you actually like holding it together? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it would kill me. Yeah, I've even had male clients come to me who've been put on 800 calories a day diets oh. and utilizing at the same time. Uh, and I, I just, you know, you look at some nutritionists and you go, well, how do you actually expect someone to function? Mm. And we know that biology is, or, or function, it's an energy dependent thing. And sure, you can put somebody through the short term thing, but, you know, what what can their biology handle that short-term restriction in the first place and for a lot of people they can't especially then in a high stress high polluted area you need more energy to get through mm. adequate not too much not too little it's about getting it right sometimes and you know yeah. like we said last time that it's a minefield for some people because they're exposed to so many different variables and disciplines and trains of thought with mm. all the modern kind of thinking like keto or low carb mm. or all this kind of stuff. And yeah, you, you kind of feel for some people. <laughs> I, I, I get a lot of people coming to my office who, who are just in tears going, I just, I don't I know. know what to do. Yeah, they're, so, do. they're so confused. And then I think too, like even, I don't know if you find this in your program because the noise is so loud out there, you know, like even when they come into our program at the like, you know, cause it goes against everything. We tell them this is going to take you 12 months. You got to focus on the subjective measures first. Like if you fucked, and you're maintaining your body weight, eating, you know, how many calories and your sleep is shit and your hormones are out of balance. You've got no muscle. It's like you have to work on that first. And then yeah. exterior is going to change. And, you know, when you're desperate and you just like, you can get swayed by, you know, outside influences. Oh, do this quick thing, you know, do this fasting. You'll drop five kilos. You know, I think it is, can be very difficult. Um, and I think too, like a lot of the time for so many of these women, and it was for me, it, it's actually like, cause I used to drink a lot. Like I was a big drinker and then I'd eat fucking dog shit, you know, like I'd go and eat KFC, like pure ridden. And it's, I had to change who I, who I was like, 
at a fundamental level because if you continue to go out and get shit-faced and eat that food, you're never going to get better and then starve yourself during the week, you know, and it's, and that can be sometimes really confronting, I think. I mean, we've gone off topic now, you know. Um, But also it's a time frame thing, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of people will come in their 30s and 40s and they go, I've done this, everything's been fine before up until now, but actually it's the cumulative load of disrupting circadian rhythms, cumulative load of phytoestrogens from consuming lots of alcohol, lots of eat out a lot, there's a lot of uh, unsaturated fats in that, you know, there's lots of different variables and it's like, you know, even going back to the kind of the house hygiene, the different aspects of pollution, it's almost like that analogy, the last straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, you've done it before, but there are all these things just keep adding 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 and now you're breaking down because of that yeah and when you start to chip away at the different factors that um uh are, are, are creating that and you know and then everybody starts to think oh it's sugar i'm eating too much sugar but actually the reason why you can't metabolize the sugar and you're you're, you're presenting with hyperglycemia or even hypo depending on what stage you're on is not because of the sugary you're eating generally it's mm. because of the things like pollution stress Mm. perpetuating burning fatty acids as a fuel rather than being able to utilize carbohydrates having that metabolic flexibility and mm. people are coming to you very inflexible mm. so they blame like sugar as being the primary reason and it's not it's that inability to use sugar and even most clinicians who understand biology will say you know it sugar does not cause diabetes Mm. as such there can be we can consume excess amounts of sugar in isolation that might be problematic but there are so many other things that can contribute to the diabetic state and i still think and you can see it in, in parts but pollution is a big driver of the diabetic state mm. uh consuming lots of vegetable oils is a driver of the the, the diabetic state stress is a big factor of that as well you mm. know but even even it's well known that during times of fasting, so let's take Ramadan for example. Mm. If you're a child growing, if you're somebody on medication, if you're pregnant, there are key reasons why you don't have to fast, mm. and that's because these are very sensitive um, uh, functions of biology: growing, pregnancy, and somebody mm. on a medication. So what you're saying there. Is these these sensitive areas? If you don't give them enough energy, something is going to happen. And mm. it's well known that people who fast, who have who have wayward blood sugar levels, can actually turn themselves into a, a, a diabetic. And there there are numerous cases of type two diabetics going turning into type one because of the um, you know fasting using fats as a fuel and not being flexible enough to bring back the sugar regulation. Mm. So these are just some of the aspects of biology and, and again, trying to give people what they need and reducing doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to get better because of that. Mm. And and it's the same- we, we should do a, a separate chat on that about diabetes. I think it, what is yeah. the true cause of it? Because I think so many, you know, I get on my ads all the time, sugar is poison. It causes diabetes, kitty. You know, like it's just, it's, it's crazy. People are so brainwashed. Um, but anyway, that's another, we, we should definitely do that another time. So I think, you know, like what we and you as well get women to track in the program is the subjective and objective measures. So temperature, pulse, you know, look at those things, sleep, digestion, mood, energy, menstrual cycle, you know, um, mood, sex drive. And all yeah. of, if all of those things are poor <laughs> and low, yeah. you can pretty much assume that you've got some work to do, you know? Um, and it is, I think like, like you say, 80% of people can get really awesome results just being better with the food, you know? And yeah, yeah, I I think there's a, a, going back to thyroid and food as well is not everybody realizes how energy dependent regulating thyroid hormone is. And because Mm -hmm. thyroid hormone, as, as I said many times, permeates every single aspect of physiology, having enough adequate energy in is the number one reason why you can regulate thyroid hormone. Mm. And so when you start to see all these decreases in function, the net effect of kind of not getting enough energy in is suppression of thyroid hormone and mm. increasing stress hormones, adrenaline, cortisol, noradrenaline, glucagon, all of these things that we need generally to either because our body's getting cold and heading, heading towards those low temperature values or we just don't have enough glucose available to regulate energy, so we'll stimulate the stress response to break down fatty acids into mm. glucose. Mm. So, yeah, I think the food is the big thing. I mean, we, we can't really say 
we can't understate how, how important food is for becoming more robust to environmental stimulus, psychological stress, exercise stress. And it is, it, it is it's quite easy, isn't it, to get into the, the, the paradigm as well. Oh, well, that guy's super lean or that lady's super lean and they're, 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 um, they're on a low-carb diet, they're on a carnivore diet, they're skipping breakfast, they're fasting and they're exercising. It shouldn't uh, take rocket scientists to, to realise that if you exercise hard and restrict calories, you are going to get thin. Yeah. Right? It's, called, yeah. it's called starvation. Yeah. And you, you, will, well, you will tend to liberate more growth hormone as part of that. But that growth hormone is part of the stress response as much as the adrenaline and cortisol are. Mm. So I, I think that the people just, because they're still not sure of, of what constitutes good function, and we talked mm. about that, energy, sleep, digestion, mm. libido, mood, these are the great markers that you have. And any time you start to see a loss of those markers, you know it's not working for you. Mm. And it's not sustainable, you know, and I think so many women too, like they're, they're either really good at restricting, so they stay small and they're wrecked, their metabolism's wrecked and they've got all these issues, or they just restrict and they binge and they drink yeah. heaps of alcohol and they binge and then they just get fat, you know, and it's, it, it's, the process is still the same. Eat regularly. You know, we, you know, obviously um, encourage strength training. Um, you know, it, it's, it, and you just got to do it. Can, like the women that get the best results in our program, both health transformations and body transformations, they yeah. just follow the system the system yeah. like we have a system you know we we track and measure everything because it gives us data you know we set the macros they do their own diets they pick the foods they like and then every week we look at the data what's the data telling us do you need yeah. more food do you need more liver do you need more oysters do you need some progesterone? do you need you know what i mean like look at the temperature pulse is it coming up you probably need some more food you know and until we can once you get those things you know to a good spot I think too, like people that generally we found that the women, when they, as they gradually get stronger and they're really consistent with their nutrition, we actually find we have to increase their calories and they lose body fat. Yeah. It's not decrease. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that's quite well known, but I mean, a lot of people fail to understand about getting to that point. Um, I think, sorry, I've lost my, my train of thought. I was thinking about something. Um, Sorry, remind me what you just said there. Just talking about women when they come into the program and they follow the system that we have, you know, and we track and measure, we find that over time we actually increase their calories. And like a great example of this is Sean McNamara. She started at nearly 100 kilos. She's down 25, nearly 25 kilos. She started at 1,900. She's now eating 2,400. Yeah. And she's lost 25 kilos. Yeah, and that, like, I think we touched on this last time is that there's a quite a considerable body of research that shows if you give, this is on animals and mice, for example, but if you mm. give them adequate energy, their biology is able to function, it flourishes. You mm. get more mitochondriogenesis, you get mm. more cells, mitochondria, powerhouses of metabolism, able to, mm. to use fat and sugar as a fuel uh, and, and really function as well as you could do. So the person who has adequate available energy in a system and even excess energy, they can mm. utilize that because the body knows exactly what it's doing. Whereas mm. the more that it's restricted, the more that it's producing the stress hormones, the more it's being taken to a place it doesn't want to go to, it's mm. going to put all the uh, checks and balances to prevent you getting to a worse state, whether that's a low temperature, mm. um, low function. When you lose your body temperature, you start to lose key enzymes that are involved in, in the aerobic metabolism. Mm. So your body doesn't want you to do that. So Every time you restrict food and you keep getting colder, your body's going to go, well, I'm going to shut down the, the, the aerobic metabolism to mm. a degree. That mm. means you're going to lose efficiency with carbohydrates. Remember, mm. the loss of carbohydrate signaling is a, is a, is a good sign that stuff's not working. Mm. So you, you, will, you will develop that as you start to get colder. Apart from if your body gets to a point, it doesn't want you to be colder anymore. It will start to ramp up this stress response to make you warmer. But that is a stress response. It's, it's there as an adaptive response. It's not efficient. And over time, the more that you're stuck in that will degrade your biology. So mm. you, you'll eat more food and you'll, you probably might put a little bit more weight on because you're still stuck in the stress response. Mm. You're, not, you're not anywhere near the, the optimal response of using fats and carbohydrates as a fuel where you should be. So that makes, that makes so much sense to me. But mm. like you say, so many people are scared to go through that to start with. 
Mm. Yeah, it does really work though. You know, like we always bang on about it, the bloody consistency. There's no way around it. You know, <laughs> you got to be consistent. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, again, I'm going to digress slightly. Even mm. if you look at um, aspects of fertility, mm. you know, the endocrine society, one of the uh, papers they released saying doctors de- need to do more to assess a female's food intake. Because mm. it's well known anorexics, when you go and assess luteinizing hormone, follicle stimulating hormone, the pituitary hormones influence uh, ovarian production of estrogen and progesterone, mm. these appear completely low in somebody who's been starving themselves. Mm. And when you take the concept of starving yourself, it might just be that you skip breakfast and only eat two meals a day, right? Mm. You don't know. There's context to everybody's version of starving themselves. Or it might be that you eat three meals a day, but you expend enough energy in the gym so it only appears like you're getting one meal a day. Mm. So unless you're looking at that and getting an adequate handle on what someone's eating and the stress they're under, Mm. these luteinizing hormones, uh, sorry, the pituitary hormones, and even the responses at the the hypothalamus, there Mm. are many cases of something called functional uh, hypothalamic amenorrhea. What that basically means is that the hypothalamus isn't increasing the amount of signals that stimulates the pituitary to then stimulate the ovary to produce the hormones that they want, primarily mm. because someone is starving, they're hungry. Mm. All these hormones can regulate. The next thing is, well, we need to put you on this hormone, on this hormone, on this hormone, or mm. we need to give you this medicine. When actually all they actually need is a decent feed and enough energy to get them throughout the day and through a deep restorative sleep. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was awesome. It's, I should uh, probably, we've, we've been chatting for, uh, for quite a while. And I think, you know, the, the takeaway is track those things, track and measure the subjective and objective measures um, and eat consistently, you know, like it really, because I think it's when you're desperate, you're just looking for that quick thing. But, you know, like I said, the women that get the best results in our program are the ones that are consistent and do it for long enough. Yeah. You know, and like you know, just, yeah. just going to say quickly about sleep as well. Mm. Sleep, there can be reasons why people don't sleep well. But if you're consistently waking up early hours of the morning, mm. you find it hard to get to sleep. Never underestimate the, 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 the uh, failure to get enough calories in and keep you mm. in deep restorative sleep because the brain uses just as much glucose in the, in the deep phase of sleep as it does when it's awake. Mm. So there could be an that you're just not getting enough food so there are many markers that you can look at if you're looking at tracking your sleep and you're just not getting enough food in it's a no-brainer just to eat a little bit yeah. more food and that's one of the things we always you know like it's a great thing about a new app that's coming out like each week you measure your sleep how, how have i slept like did i do eight hours solid was i you know and we can see the food and go all right let's change your food up your food and let's see what happens you know, um, and you're right. So often it's just, and I see it every day in our program, like women post, Oh my God, I just slept through for eight hours for the first time. And it's like, sleep is the most fucking glorious thing. You know, I actually woke up this morning at bloody three 30. I don't know why, because we're just like so busy and we've got so much shit on, you know, like I actually do feel like I'm a little bit stressed, like not bad, bad stress, but you know, I don't sleep perfectly every night, but I can really feel that today. And, you know, so I've just been drinking some extra juice and having some extra fudge and I'll have a big dinner tonight. And, you know, when I do that, I have a much better sleep. You know, I always have my new gel and my ice cream before I go to bed. (laughs) Get my room light on. Yeah, yeah. All of those things are great. Even my kids now, before they they come out of the bath and they jump in front of the red light. So good. Yeah. It's really relaxing. Yeah. And they they use it. That's go-to for mosquito bites at the moment. Yeah a bit of a mosquito daddy i want the red light on so yeah. you know uh, there's, there, there are various things that we could do perhaps sleep is a good one that we could talk about at some point i think oh yeah we should definitely i was thinking why don't we next episode let's do diabetes and sugar because i think that's a really good one you know and i get lots of um lots of comments and questions and i think there's misconceptions around um around that so oh look thanks so much that was great i'm sure the ladies um will love that and um you know i you know have a have a great christmas and um you know i'll I'll speak to you in the new year perfect okay bye see you later